0: An interesting story uh, I came across this week, and Katie helped me find some specific details about it. During World War II, there was this ace pilot, ace German pilot during World War II. Uh, His name was Stigler, and he was one kill away from uh, the Knight's Cross, which was the highest award for valor that Germany had. Uh, He was very good at what he did. But what's unique about Stigler, before the war started, he had been studying to be a minister. And then the war started and now he's this ace pilot. Uh, And uh, he was at his uh, air base one day. Remember, one kill away from the uh, uh, Knight's Cross, the Medal of Valor, the highest Medal of Valor they had. And he's standing out there on the tarmac next to his plane off in the distance. He sees an American B-17 bomber. At the time uh, they were trying to slow down um, Germany's advance and trying to hit them at home to keep them from, from their, having their focus on other areas. But this bomber was in the distance and uh, it was moving kind of slow. Well, Stigler's commanding officer pointed at him and told him to get up in the air and and finish that bomber off. That was his assignment for the day, and that would earn him then the Knight's Cross. And so Stigler jumps in his plane, shoots down the runway, makes a beeline for that B-17. And as he gets close, he began to notice it's kind of smoking a little bit, struggling to even just stay in the air. It looks like this B-17's been in quite a fight and somehow made it out. But as he gets right up behind this thing, hand on the trigger, he can see it's got holes in it. He can see some of the crewmen in the plane are dead. And the ones that are alive are trying to take care of the ones who are struggling. As he looks in this plane, and he, he maneuvers his uh, fighter up next to the bomber looking into the holes in the side of the plane, looking into the cockpit where the pilot was. He makes eye contact with the pilot, and the pilot says, we're about to be destroyed. But the eye contact stops. Stigler, or the eye contact stays. Stigler removes his hand from the trigger, looks at the guy, nods to him, and repositions his fighter plane in formation, next to the B-17 American bomber, and escorts the bomber out of German airspace. Because any ground fire, seeing the German plane, would not then fire, and wouldn't honestly think much about the B-17, because what the Germans would do is they would take downed B-17s that were still operational, reconfigure them, and use them themselves. And so seeing the German fighter escorting the B-17, the guys on the ground would think nothing of it. Well, he escorted this this, this bomber all the way to the edge of, of German airspace, knowing all the while, if anyone ever found out, if this was ever reported, it wouldn't matter how good of a pilot he was. It wouldn't matter how many other planes he shot down. If he assisted the enemy, he would be executed that day. But he escorted this guy through German airspace, and then he turned his plane around, saluted the Americans, and says, you are now in God's hands, and flew back to his base. Some years later, this always stuck in both of their minds. The the pilot of the American plane was a man named Brown, and 50 years later, the two guys found each other, fell on each other weeping, and became friends until the day they died. See, that day, Stigler did something that was unusual. And he showed phenomenal mercy in that moment. He didn't have to escort them out. No one would have thought any different. He was doing his job shooting them down. But he couldn't do it. And he let them go and showed them mercy. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Because far too often... I don't know if you've noticed this. In our world, we find ourselves asking the question, where is the mercy? Where is the mercy? Where is the mer- Why can't there just be just a little bit of mercy right here, right now? More often than not, we, we, we find ourselves asking that question in response to somebody showing us an unkindness. Can you just give me a little mercy right now? More so than us giving someone else mercy. It's how can we receive more mercy, but... We see it everywhere, we see it on the news, we see it on our streaming services, we see it in social media especially. Where is the mercy? Well, there was mercy one day flying over German-occupied skies in World War II between a guy who was going to be a minister but joined up with the German Air Force. And we're gonna see the key role that mercy is supposed to play in the life of every follower of Jesus. Look at Matthew chapter 5. We're looking at the Beatitudes, which is really the introduction of Jesus' longest single teaching in Scripture. Jesus spent Matthew 5, 6, and 7 preaching what is called the Sermon on the Mount. He had seen this massive crowd of people. And when he saw all these people coming, and honestly, the people weren't really coming to be disciples. They were coming because they wanted to see him do a miracle. They were coming because they were curious. Possibly some would end up being followers of Jesus. But Jesus saw this big crowd and he went up on the side of this hill, this mountain, and he sat down. He called his disciples, his actual disciples, his followers around him. And the crowd came and they gathered all around his disciples. And so he spends these three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, teaching what the life of a disciple looks like. So that his own disciples would know, this is how you're supposed to live. This is what is expected of you. But also so that all those other guys who weren't disciples would know, okay, if I want to be a disciple, that's what is expected. That's what it's supposed to look like. And so Jesus is teaching about what is the life of a disciple. In his introduction here, in these verses, uh, the Beatitudes are the life of the disciple is blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, uh, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. And then today, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So the disciple of Jesus is supposed to be merciful. 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 The disciple of Jesus is is merciful. And as you see there, blessed are the merciful. The disciple of Jesus is blessed because of the Lord's extended mercy to them. See, notice in that verse, it says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Notice, though, they don't receive mercy because they're merciful. They're blessed. Not because they're merciful. They're blessed because they have received mercy. The blessing is from the received mercy. And notice it's in the passive voice there Uh, it's not voice, passive tense, right? My wife's an English teacher. Uh, they They have received the mercy from somewhere else. And so they're blessed because the Lord has given them mercy, his extended mercy to them, and so they are blessed because of that. The received mercy is from God, from the Lord. And so having received mercy, they're blessed, and being blessed, they're supposed to be merciful. And Jesus talked about, this concept of of mercy and understanding it as best we can uh, in an interaction he had in just a few chapters. So flip over, if you will, to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. This is very unique in what Jesus is about to do. See, Jesus never did anything on accident. Everything he did was on purpose was for a point. Usually it had several points. He would do something to teach his disciples. He would do something to teach those who were possibly going to be disciples. And he would do the same thing to teach those who were coming to be opponents and even enemies. And uh, and even teaching something for us today uh, so many centuries later. So Matthew chapter 9, look at verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, we talked uh, uh, not too long ago about a guy named uh, uh, Zacchaeus, who was also a tax collector. And, And tax collectors were extremely hated. I mean, you may think you don't like the tax man today just because he takes your money. But this was a whole new concept, a whole different level. Because the tax collector worked for the Roman government. And what they would do is they would employ guys who were from that culture of whatever region they they were collecting taxes from and so matthew is a jew collecting money from jews and giving the jewish money to romans and so the jews saw that as a betrayal as as traitorous and so any tax collector who was a jew collecting money for the romans they hated not only that the tax collectors notoriously charged more than the taxes rome wanted rome didn't care how much the tax collectors charged as long as Rome got the money they were expecting, right? So whether or not Matthew was one of those guys, we don't know. We know about Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. He was that kind of guy. He did that. But Matthew was a tax collector, so he was hated. And so Jesus walks up to this hated outcast guy because he's hated, he's an outcast because of decisions he's made to be a tax collector. Jesus walks up to him and calls him to be one of his disciples, one of his inner circle, Try to picture those other disciples who are already there and the massive crowd that is there. Jesus is doing a massive faux pas. First off, talking to a tax collector, don't ever do that. He, he's an outcast, he's a bad guy, you don't want to go near him. Not only is he, is he betraying his people, he's also, because he's a tax collector, having to interact with Gentiles and interacting with Gentiles, if we go near him as Jews, then that would mean that we're unclean and we can't go worship. So you've got to stay away from him because he's just bad. And Jesus walks right up to him, doesn't uh, doesn't just interact with him. Jesus says, I want you to come and be with me forever from here on out. Be one of my disciples. Notable gasp went through the crowd. Probably his own disciples also. Which we know one of his disciples was a guy named Simon the Zealot. Zealots wanted to overthrow the government, the government that Matthew worked for. So he says, hey, Matthew, follow me. And you're going to bunk with Simon the Zealot. (laughs) If I were Jesus, that's what I would do. (laughs) Y'all going to work it out. But Jesus says, Matthew, follow me. And Matthew drops everything, gets up, and follows Jesus. Look at verse 10. Look what happens next. As Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now we learn from the telling of this story in Luke chapter 5, this is Matthew's house. So Jesus goes to Matthew's house and Matthew throws a little party for all of his friends who it calls here. Matthew's the one who wrote this down, right? Matthew wrote down the book of Matthew and he calls his friends tax collectors and sinners. Some of his friends were undoubtedly tax collectors and sinners. This was a title given in first century culture for outcasts, for people who made sinful decisions, sinful lifestyles. They're tax collectors and sinners. There's nobody worse than tax collectors and sinners. Was the common theme in their mindset. And so Matthew says, I called together all my friends who society said were tax collectors and sinners, people that everybody hated. Sometimes they'd made their own decisions and gotten to this point. Sometimes they were just classified this because of where they came from or who they were with. He says, But I invited everybody I knew, and Matthew being an outcast, only people he knew were tax collectors and sinners. So he calls them to his house. There's Jesus in there with his disciples, sitting or reclining at the table. That's the way they ate back then. They ate laying down at a table. Maybe you should try that today at lunch. Eat laying down. I'm not advocating that, but (laughs) Jesus was doing it here. Uh, He was laying down at the table, and they were eating, and Jesus talking with all those guys at the table, all the tax collectors and sinners, and they've gathered around this table, Matthew's friends, people without the best reputation. You see, the thing here is... Jesus was never worried about perception. You know, some people say perception is reality. No, (laughs) reality is reality. Uh, Perception is just somebody's assumption about a situation that they don't understand. Perceiving this moment, anybody observing this would think, well, Jesus must be a tax collector or a sinner. I mean, if he's hanging out with those people, that's who he must be. That is how the situation is perceived. Look at uh, verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now that question implies he must be one of them. Why would, your tax co- why would your teacher go in there and eat with these guys if he's not like them? If he doesn't approve of their lifestyle decisions? If he, if he doesn't do the same thing that they did last night, why is he in there with them? They asked this question, but... They're not quiet in their asking. You know, some of these houses were set up in a way that the the dinner table was right in front of the front area where there was a big window or or a big open space or possibly out in the courtyard. And so anybody walking by could observe this. There was probably a crowd. I mean, Jesus got to town with the crowd standing there. The Pharisees would have come up, observed this, and asked his disciples who are sitting at the table next to Jesus this question for everybody to hear. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, Jesus, overhearing this, verse twelve, responds. He doesn't let his disciples respond. He responds himself. But when he heard it, he said, "Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. See, only the sick need a doctor. Only the sick." need a doctor now some of us we may not be sick but we're kind of you know hypochondriacs and so we feel like we're sick and so we go to the doctor we may not need the doctor but we go uh, I know that's nobody in the room right nobody in here I saw <laughs> some of you are going to be sleeping on the couch tonight I saw that uh, he said only the sick need a doctor and so Jesus's response to those guys is I'm here to help people I'm here to be a helper Not just go and hang out with people who are all good. He says, I've come, as the great physician, to help people. And so we, observing situations like this, we should never be surprised when a helper helps those in need of help. That's his purpose. That's why he's there. He goes there to help. And so he walks into this situation that none of those Pharisees would be caught dead here. Anywhere near this part of town. But Jesus goes there because these people need help. He goes there. To be a helper. Those in need of help need a helper. Some people may say that uh, uh, Scripture says, this is what some people say, it doesn't actually say this, but that God helps those who help themselves. Scripture doesn't even imply that. Anywhere. Scripture says this, I mean this is the principle here. Help is found when those in need of a helper come to the helper. God helps those who come to the helper. We see that all throughout Scripture. Jesus tells us in Matthew 11:28, 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus wants us to cast all our cares on him. 1 Peter 5, 7, because he cares for you. Revelation 22, 17, The spirit and the bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Help is found. When those in need of help come to the helper, when we go to—he's the—he's the one who can heal us. He's the one who can help us. I mean, if we are are in dire need of, of physical healing, are we going to go to the guy just right down the road and say, "Hey, you know, I saw you working on your mower. Can you grab those pliers and help me out here with my finger?" Or are we going to try to you know make a beeline for the doctor? we got to go to the doctor. He's the one who can help us. He's the one with the medicine. He's the one with the sterile tools. He's the one who's going to take care of us. So if your finger's falling off, don't go to your neighbor with the pliers. Just don't. I'm just telling you. Don't. Just let that be, you know, sound advice. Uh, Unless your neighbor's a doctor and he's got sterile tools at home, then by all means. But help is found. When those in need of help, come to the helper. And Jesus tells us all over the place, come, come to me, come to me. And you will find help. And so in saying that to those Pharisees who are are deeply concerned, not for the well-being of Jesus, not for the well-being of Matthew and his friends, but... Are deeply concerned about the perception they may have as religious, or that other people may have of them as religious leaders who might consider Jesus to be a religious leader. And now Jesus, religious leader man, is associating with people that they think he should not be. And so they're all worried about what people might think of them and this whole deal. And they're trying to discredit Jesus in the midst of this. And Jesus responds that it's the sick who need a doctor. Uh, Look at verse 13. Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That's a quote from an Old Testament scripture we're going to look at in just a minute. And then he says, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. See, Jesus came for those that culture considers unqualified in order to qualify them. Jesus came to... Bring those who want to follow him into his fold there 's a story I heard a few years back about a guy, a preacher who was getting ready to go preach. He was in his office, he was getting ready, he was about to the service was about to start, and he had YouTube on and he he was undoubtedly this was the last time he ever did that, uh, but you know sometimes you 're watching YouTube and uh, if you don't have it unchecked, it will automatically play the next thing that comes up. And so he had something on, and the next thing that comes up comes up was a, a video of a conference. And the guy speaking is is a, another pastor that he greatly respected. A guy he had books of all over his shelves. He had studied many things this man said. Uh, and he heard it. Oh, that's a great guy. And so he's getting ready, and then he hears his name. And we're, oh. He's, they're talking about me. <laughs> He's getting a little excited. Uh, and uh, what, what it was was this great, respected pastor was being interviewed by somebody. And he said, what do you think about so-and-so? And it was the pastor who's, that I heard telling the story. And he goes, oh, what does he think about me? <laughs> All right, I can't wait to hear this. And the great, respected pastor on YouTube, he goes, one word, unqualified. And the pastor I heard tell the story said, I just collapsed. (laughs) I'm supposed to go out there and preach, and here's this guy that I didn't think knew my name. (laughs) He said I'm unqualified. He just kind of—he said he—he sat there for—he paused YouTube. He didn't want to hear anymore. (laughs) Turned off the computer, and just sat down, and just sat there. I mean, he—he almost didn't make it in for the sermon. He missed the music. He was just flabbergasted. Like, just crippled him. And then his wife came in, and he told her what happened. Because she came in looking for him. Where are you? They're going to need you in just a second. And uh, she prayed for him, began to speak over over him and and say, listen, it's not Mr. YouTube Man who qualifies you. It's Jesus. That guy's got no word over your life. He doesn't know what Jesus did in you. He doesn't know that Jesus called you. He wasn't there at any point during any of that. Jesus put you here. So you better get your rear end up there and preach that word. <laughs> and he went in there and he preached fire. And then he, he, he wrote a book. You know what the title of it was? Unqualified. <laughs> he took what the enemy meant for evil and turned it good. See, Jesus will come to anybody culture thinks is unqualified. Say it doesn't matter what culture thinks. It doesn't matter. I can take a thirteen year old kid and walk him out in front of a giant and take a rock and embed it in that giant's head. Think you're unqualified? That's a shepherd boy going to fight a battle that he's never been in before. Jesus can do anything with anybody who's willing. Who's willing. Qualification doesn't matter. Resume doesn't matter. You know, one of the one of the most effective preachers in the last hundred years, Billy Graham, didn't have one theological degree. Didn't. He pastored one church. While he was there, they hated him. Can you imagine that? Letting that be your legacy. (laughs) We hated Billy Graham. Uh, But the thing was, he wasn't a pastor. He was an evangelist. God took him and did something nobody thought was possible. Because when you're gifted by the Lord, you don't need anybody else's stamp of approval. And he can do whatever he's going to do because he's God. God. I mean you can go and get every certification and all that some of that's a lot of that is good absolutely but that doesn't prove you can do what you need to do Jesus does And so Jesus comes to these people calls Matthew of all people tax collector hanging out with tax collectors and sinners and he tells these Pharisees, guys who were educated, guys who had massive chunks of the Old Testament memorized, quite possibly some of those very ones asking him this question had the entire law memorized. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I mean, of all the scriptures you may have memorized, let's say Genesis 1-1, John three sixteen, John eleven thirty five, 35 Jesus wept. Any of you have Leviticus? <laughs> like... Like, and here's these guys coming up here, these guys who know it backwards and forwards, coming to question Jesus. Unbeknownst to them, Jesus is one who wrote all of those books they have memorized. And Jesus says, you guys don't even know what you, he didn't say this, but this is the way I'm thinking. They don't even know who they're talking to. And he tells them, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Sinners in need of a savior. Not people who are self-savers, who have no need of a savior. But what's interesting is, even these guys asking the question, the guys asking the question who think they are righteous are not. And Jesus says, I didn't come to call righteous people. Because in truth, not only does Paul say it, but it, it's a, Paul quotes it from Old Testament scripture, no one is righteous. No, not one. One. He says, I came to call everybody, is what Jesus is saying. You may think you're righteous, guys, Pharisees. You're not. You need a Savior just as much as these tax collectors and sinners. You need a Savior. The difference is they're willing to come and hear from the Savior. (laughs) And those Pharisees were not. These these guys coming to Jesus were going to hear from him. Because as Jesus has just said, I came for sinners. Or he said it again in Luke 19.10. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Seek, that is an active verb. It's an action that He has intentionally gone out to seek these people out. And they are willing to hear from Him. These sinners, the, the, these unbelievers, really, they're, they're really pre-believers, right? I mean, they are they're willing to come to Jesus and hear from Him. And they're there, and they're listening and, and receiving the word that He's telling them. Because... In reality, someone like the Pharisee, someone who's unwilling to admit their need for help, unwilling to admit their need for salvation, would rather go it alone now and on into eternity. And then Jesus says here, you know, I have come not to call the righteous, but call sinners. I came to seek and save the lost. He gives us that assignment in John 20, 21. As the Father has sent me, so now I am sending you. So it's our job. We are his representatives in the world. We are here with the same purpose he has. We are here for the lost. We are here for the sinners. We are here for the unbelievers. We are here for the pre-believers. We are here as life flight pilots bringing people to the great physician. That's our job. That's our role. In wherever he has planted us, wherever he has placed us, that's who we are. We're supposed to be, like Jesus, helpers. So I am a helper. I am to help like Jesus helped. By seeking out those in need of help and bringing them to the great helper. A helper helps by bringing those in need of help to the true helper. So you have to ask yourself are you helping by bringing people to Jesus? People in need of help. And I guarantee you, everybody around you needs help. They may be putting up a front, acting like they don't need help. Everything's good. I'm good. How are you doing? Oh, I'm good. They're not. None of us are. We all need Jesus every day. Nobody knows what anybody else is struggling with. Everybody needs help. Everybody does. And so then, I want you to think about that, though. Everybody needs help. The next time somebody frustrates you, irritates you, does something you don't like, you've got to see it from the perspective of Jesus. These are people who need help. They need help. They may be getting on my last nerve. I may have unchristian-like prayed, Jesus, take them. (laughs) I know they're going to heaven, but now, please, Jesus. But they need help, just like I need help. They need Jesus, just like I need Jesus. But, you know, bringing people to the true helper In order to to truly help, we have to first go and learn that first thing Jesus said in verse 13 to those Pharisees. He tells those Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Sacrifice was religious practice. They thought sacrifice earned God's good graces. That was doing the religion. But religious practice Without merciful actions or a merciful heart means nothing. Jesus said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. If you come and you offer sacrifice to me without mercy in your heart, then you're not coming to honor me. You're not coming for me. A lack of mercy removes all power from anything we would offer to the Lord. Because what Jesus is saying there, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He's helping us to understand this, you know, sacrifice being an act of worship. Mercy empowers worship. Mercy, it unlocks worship. Mercy enables worship. If we're carrying around bitterness, if we're carrying around anger, if we're carrying around worry, if we're carrying around anxiety, and not offering mercy to these other people, and not offering mercy to anybody around us, then how are we able to worship the one who is the great mercy giver? I mean, we like like have a, a, a blockage in our heart and all the mercy is coming in, but none of it's flowing out. We're not really then able to worship. As Old Testament scripture and then was quoted again in the New Testament, the Lord said, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. If there's not mercy in our hearts, then we're not worshiping in spirit and truth. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Mercy empowers worship. And the thing about mercy, you know, no, mercy is not giving someone what they deserve. Not giving someone what they deserve. Or, or I guess from our perspective, it would be not giving someone what we think they deserve. Right? And then we call that mercy. Because in reality, we don't know Honestly, because we're not God, we don't know the depth of what somebody else deserves. We only know what we have observed in their life, but only God knows their heart. Only God knows the the length and, and width and breadth of it. And so the closest that I can come to understanding how much mercy someone needs to receive is myself. Because I know my heart, at least a working knowledge of it. God knows it better than me. And so I can have a better understanding of how much mercy I need. And so the closer I get to God, the more I understand the the, you know, the expanse of the amount of mercy he's extended to me. But the closer I get to God, that doesn't mean I understand how much mercy he's given you. Because I don't know the depths of your heart. He does. But the moment I begin to say, that person only deserves this much mercy, that is me judging you based on what I can observe rather than on what God has done. God has done for me a massive amount in the amount of mercy he's offered. Massive amount. See, in the relationship I have with the Father, in the relationship I have with Jesus, all that I have brought to the relationship is sin. In the relationship with Jesus, I bring sin, and he brings mercy, and his mercy is always more, always more, always more. His mercy is more. I can never produce more sin than the mercy he gives. It's always going to be more, always, it's almost like a, a, a tap that's turned on in your house, the faucet turned on in your house. It's not going to run out of water as long as the director of our water department keeps it running. He's sitting out there on those couches. I don't know if he's listening or not. I didn't hear an amen from the foyer, so maybe they're, they're, they're deep in prayer. We'll say it that way. <laughs> the, the faucet's going to keep on running. The mercy's going to keep on running. It's going to keep on coming. You can't undo it. What did the psalmist write? Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Forever. It cannot be undone. So the idea that if the Lord is with me, his goodness and his mercy are always on me. No matter where I go. No matter where I go. We have a... Three and a half year old in our house. Sometimes, no matter where you go, they're coming. He's gonna be right there asking for a popsicle. Say, you didn't eat your breakfast. You say, oh, my tummy hurts. Say, can I have some chocolate medicine? (laughs) Candy. trying to get whatever he when he's always you go to the bathroom he's there you go to the laundry room he's there you go to get dressed he's there you go to make the bed he's there he won't help but he's there you, 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 you go try to get him ready but he's not willing to get ready but he's still there because you're there and he's always there It's like a horror movie <laughs> like, they never leave <laughs> I mean, there's he hasn't done this yet but there's been a time I've woken up really irritated because I, I had this in my dream somebody just kept tapping me. And I wake up and there's a face right here going, oh, get that hand off of my arm. Uh. They're always there. And it's that idea with grace and mercy. No matter where you go, grace and mercy's there. Walmart. Somebody just took that last loaf of bread. That's the loaf of bread you buy every time, but they took the last one. And you gotta settle for the backup. Grace and mercy, or, uh, goodness and mercy are still there with you in the bread aisle. You go to the gas station. We all need goodness and mercy at the gas station. Oh, my word. Uh, Goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life if the Lord is with us. If we have followed Jesus and we believe in Jesus, or as Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount, if we're a disciple of Jesus, we're blessed because of his mercy on us. His mercy on us. He brings his mercy to us. He brings us mercy that is closely followed by grace. Because grace and mercy go together. They're hand in hand. When it comes to Jesus, you don't get one without the other. They come together because of what they do. Mercy is not receiving something you do deserve. So the thing we deserve to do, he removes from us. He takes it away. In eternity, that means he takes away the punishment. He's he's taking it away. But as we see, a principle throughout Scripture is he, he... I haven't come across it. Maybe you have, but I've never seen a time that God takes something away. He doesn't replace it with something better. And so mercy is not receiving something you do deserve. He takes it away, and then grace is giving you something you don't deserve. And so in eternity, that's heaven. He takes away the punishment, mercy, and he gives us something better, heaven. So mercy and grace go hand in hand. They are together in what he gives us. And his mercy is always more. His grace is always more. As John Newton wrote, "His grace is amazing." But in what John Newton wrote in "Amazing Grace," the the, the probably the most famous Christian hymn of all time, uh, outside of Martin Luther's "Mighty Fortress Our God," in writing "Amazing Grace," it wasn't just grace that John Newton received. He got the inspiration from the Lord to follow after him in begging God to spare his life in the midst of a storm as he was the captain of a slave ship. God gave him mercy in sparing his life and then gave him grace he would need from then on. He got mercy and grace, which is what we get. We get mercy. He doesn't give us something we do deserve. Then we get grace. We do get something we don't deserve. If we believe in him, if we follow after him. And then in the blessing of the mercy and the grace, we need to understand blessed are, those, or, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. We need to be merciful. We need to be helping people in that mercy, bringing them to the helper, bringing them to the great, great offerer of mercy. Are you a helper in the people that are around you? Do you bring mercy to them, to their lives? Are you a helper in bringing them, those in need of help, to the great helper? Or maybe today, you need mercy yourself. You need mercy. Maybe you really, what you need to understand is God's offering you mercy. And that thing that's in the back of your head that the enemy keeps bringing bringing up and making you feel guilty about, God has already covered it with his mercy is done, It's done, it's gone. He's forgiven it, he's covered it. You see, God isn't gonna bring something up in your life, something that was a sin, in order to make you feel guilty. He will convict you about something you're habitually doing now. But that reminding process, if it's already settled and taken care of and forgiven, that reminding process is the enemy trying to cut you off at the knees. If it's covered by his blood, if it's covered by his forgiveness, if it's covered by his mercy, bringing it up against the enemy. Follow the Lord. Receive his mercy. Maybe today you need to receive his mercy for the first time. Maybe today you need to believe in Jesus. Jesus is God's son. He died so all your sins would be forgiven. All of them. All of them, even the one that you can't forget, even the one you haven't done yet, he's already forgiven it if you follow him and believe in him. And then he rose from the dead, so you can live after you die. So believing in Jesus grants us eternity. Will you believe in Jesus today? Maybe so what happened, needs to happen right now? we 're going to sing a song, or I 'm going to pray, then we 're going to sing a song. And the song is, His mercy is more. Very appropriate. You need to ask yourself one of two questions. Do you need mercy from Jesus today for the first time? Do you need to believe in Jesus today? And the second question, who do you need to offer mercy to? Something you've been harboring in your heart for a while. Hanging on to. Clinging to that unmerciful action or thought. Who do you need to offer mercy to today? Maybe it's yourself. Maybe it's somebody in your house. Maybe it's somebody who you haven't seen or talked to in years, but you still think about that thing. It's time to let it go. Come to Jesus and be merciful.